Hello, and welcome to the Smart Karma Podcast. I'm Michael Tejos. Every week on the podcast, we share a presentation and discussion from our webinar Wednesdays, when we sit down with Smart Karma insight providers and selected experts from around the world to break down the key topics you care about in Asia's markets. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and so on. If you like what we do, consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your chosen podcast app, as this really helps more people discover the show. Thank you for being with us, and enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to another webinar by Smart Karma. I'm Valerie, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming Smart Karma Insight Provider and founder of Two Rivers Analytics, Eric Fernandez, who will be taking us through his top short trade ideas in the U.S., before we start, a bit of standard housekeeping. As always, please feel free to send in your questions for our insight provider throughout the webinar using the Q&A button on your Zoom app, and we will get to them during the Q&A session. Please do not reshare the contents of this webinar without expressed permission. A recording will be available afterwards on the registration page and sent to all attendees. And with that, thank you, Eric, for being with us today at 4 a.m. in the States. Nonetheless, maybe you can give us a brief introduction of your background before we dive right into the topic for today. Great, great. I will. Well, thank you very much to, to Valerie and to all of our participants today. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning, and we'll, we'll jump right in. The introduction is actually included in this presentation. I'll go fairly quickly, but there is an opportunity to request the presentation. We can make that available to the participants afterwards. So today, what we're, we're planning on doing is giving you a quick snapshot of Two Rivers, how we arrive at our short ideas, a quick overview of strategy and what's going on in the short market. And then finally, the, the core of the presentation is, is a series of short ideas. So just very quickly in summary, we are focused almost exclusively on, on a short selling and short strategy. We've been in business since 2010, and we like to think that we have a, a very nice, tight, robust process for, for developing short ideas. Process is based on a series of, of purpose-built models that are targeted to, towards finding different types of shorts. It could be breaking growth stories or companies that are temporarily over-earning, or of course, liquidity and solvency risk shorts, et cetera. So we run these models and then they actually inform our, our process. That's the top of the funnel. And then we do the fundamental work behind it. Okay. This, you know, for, for those that, that end up with physical presentation, this is a bit more detail into some of our models and no, no need to do it here, but they have very different personalities and risk profiles. So what's going on in the short market today? A couple of things. One is that shorts are increasing their exposure into packet software, semis, and believe it or not, oil and gas production as well. Some feel that this uh, this group has talked too quickly or too aggressively and are starting to make short bets there. We uh, we track the performance of short stocks, and we see obviously that, that over the past week with the dovish Fed comments, we had a, a short and sharp, a short squeeze that hit us last week and then carried forward as well yesterday until that news about the potentially wayward Russian missile in, in Poland. So one thing that we're very focused on here in a declining market environment, or generally a rocky market environment, is short squeezes. Highly dangerous. We, we always pay attention to this, but in, in this sort of environment, these, uh, these can be brutal. And we try to help clients by developing models that, uh, that target and identify you know, potential, you know, potential higher risk for short squeezes. One thing we also look at is the retrospective ideal short. This can be thought of as the inverse of what your typical quantitative analyst would look at and what's, what's working, so to speak. 
So what's working on the short side, you have a series of characteristics, but the one that I want to point at is that companies that are disappointing, that have very high long-term growth forecasts, but very um, pessimistic or changing or negative inflecting near-term forecasts are the ones that seem to be punished the most. So that's uh, that's worth flagging in this environment. We also look at what types of risk metrics or how risk appetites are being translated into direct market bids. And what I'd like to highlight here, oh, just a quick summary, is that we look at about nine different um, factors that are tied to short market risk and short appetite. And the ones that I want to focus here or highlight here are that aggressive industry groups in particular are drawing interest again. And they had lost interest for much of last year and have made, you know, and are coming back. And the momentum group as well is, uh, is developing renewed interest. So those two are worth, um, are worth pursuing. And the ones that are showing the, I would say, that are being disfavored and we think are going to continue to be disfavored are levered companies and unprofitable companies. The market is just not being at all patient with unprofitable companies. So onto the short ideas. This is a quick list, and it's a summary roughly allocated on a somewhat judgment, uh, somewhat subjective view of risk profile, right? So why don't we just run, jump into them and, and start running through. Okay, so Scott's miracle Grow. The core of this, of this thesis is that, uh, is that the core lawn business is being caught between rising fertilizer prices and declining consumer demand. They also have another leg of the business, which is focused on producing products for the cannabis market. This is lighting, growth media, things like that. The company is highly levered, and estimates have been declining all year. So the, the core of the business is, is what they call U.S. consumer, which is lawn and garden products, branded lawn and garden, primarily fertilizer, fertilizer and weed control. In terms of the raw materials, this is very important, is that urea and other fertilizers are, are some of the key costs for the company. So effectively, what happened is that during COVID, um, more and more people stayed home, lockdowns, et cetera. We're all familiar with that. And a lot of people decided that they needed to make their homes look prettier. And they invested in, in lawn care, spent a lot more time in lawn care. And as the CEO says, we hit 10 years of growth in consumer in two years. And with 10 years of growth in two years here, some of that growth has to be given back. And it is, in fact, starting on the margin side. We're seeing substantial margin compression that has been going on for a while, but also accelerated quite dramatically when the price of urea fertilizer spiked. And this is driven by natural gas prices, which is the key feedstock. The company decided to extend or accelerate its growth profile for the sake of investors and embarked on a cannabis growth strategy. I would say it's a bit of a gold rush mentality that caused people to, to jump into this market thinking that the demand was going to be unlimited. As it turns out, they move too quickly in general, the whole industry, and there is a, there's a serious overcapacity situation right now. So the growers, all the indoor growers, have pulled back their, their acquisition of lighting fixtures and growing media. And, uh, you know, and here we have an admission by the CEO that, uh, that they wish they had never made some of these decisions. So that's the, they, they call that the Hawthorne segment. Leverage is actually quite high, and they do seem to have a bit of an inventory problem. By quite high, I mean about almost six times, and they do have some maturities coming on in 2023. This graph up here shows that inventory has been declining, but not nearly as fast as sales. So the inventory is accumulating in the business. Now, much of this is, uh, is known to the street, but how much is actually fashioned into estimates? We'll take a look. 
estimates have been declining all year, but we think the forecasts are, are looking for something of a slow margin recovery. And there's effectively no or almost no dip or recognition of the, the degree of the overcapacity and the degree to which sales have been pulled forward. There's very little in the way of, in the way of negative sales growth in the coming quarters and years. Okay. Multiples have in fact come down, so it's a bit cheaper certainly than it was when we, when we recommended the short, but we still think this is a very, a very viable short candidate. Catalysts and risks, we think a give back of that demand that was pulled forward is the, is the key catalyst. And on the, on the negative side or on the potential risk to a short, we would say that, there's, that it's really a question of have estimates being pushed down enough to allow for positive surprises. And our answer to that question is no, you know, but it does remain a, a potential risk. We think a restart of cannabis capacity is, is still some time off in the future. That, that, it does not appear that that's going to happen anytime soon. So legislation, it's not going to make a difference in an overcapacity market. All right, moving on to the next one. Next company we have is Builders First Source. The, this is another over-earner from our over-earner short model. This is a company that similarly benefited from, from COVID demand and, and industry product shortages. And they were able to, uh, to raise prices and they generated a lot of demand. So it's also highly exposed to the housing market, obviously. And the stock is priced for some modest reversion, but no housing downturn. So we think that uh, that is in fact happening and we think the market is not caught up with that yet. Okay, so Builders First Source basically resupplies a number of building materials. They manufacture specialty building materials that have slightly higher margins. These are things like roof trusses here, or glue lambs, or structure lumber there. So here we see that, that uh, there was a confluence, of, um, a confluence of a shortage of building, material, building materials themselves and a crushing wave of demand as people decided, people in the United States decided to move out of urban locations and establish their homes out in the suburbs, perhaps have their home offices there, partly because of COVID and also partly because of some civil unrest that happened during in, in the middle of 2020. So the prices of building supplies shot up to the roof and they pushed margins here. This is the distribution business primarily after all. So it's not unusual to see kind of a five to 7% stabilized margin and the margin shot up to over almost 20% at the EBITDA level. So really quite dramatic. So sorry, we just covered this housing demand shot up. So this is the, this is the index of housing prices. So you can see that wave there. And here we, we see now where we recognize that housing is actually getting worse quite quickly in the United States. Consumer, consumer sentiment is plunging. And housing starts, loan demand, almost whatever you look at, the closing Zillow, the troubles at Redfin or Open Door, all translate or all are directly a product of this, of this problem. All right, so the National Housing Market Index and AHB declining. And this is both the buyer traffic and the next six months index. And why is this happening? It's really two reasons. One is the rise in interest rates. Uh, this is a, an affordability graph here at the bottom. So it's the rise in interest rates and the rise in home prices. In advance of the rise in interest rates, pushed housing affordability down to very low levels. So, as much as the company and management would like to tell you that it's a distribution company and it does not or it can avoid some of the uh, the housing downturn, they can manage it. The truth is that there, there's really there's really nowhere to hide. The last time this company went through a serious downturn in 07 and 08, they suffered a 71 percent peak to trough decline in sales. And they suffered a 1,600 basis point collapse in margins. 
Uh, do I think that the current crisis is going to be as bad as 2007-8 was in the U.S.? I'm going to say no, uh, but we can't be sure. And and some portion of this decline is going to be evident even in, even in a more modest housing environment decline. Estimates are too aggressive. There is, uh, there is some give back here, but this is actually primarily based on, on difficult comparisons after an acquisition that they made over here, BMC acquisition, another large uh, building supply company. So it was private. So it, we don't think this recognizes the as a decline per se. So here are the margins and let's look at the multiples. The multiples look, let's call them unremarkable generally, but if you adjust for, if you adjust back to average margins, which are still on the highish end, that leaves your multiples up around here, okay, which is about a kind of a 15 times EBITDA multiple, again, for relatively boring distribution business that normally trades at five, six, seven times EBITDA. We've covered most of the catalysts at this point, so there's raw material shortages will, will hurt their margins as well if it continues. And if, the, if they ease, that means housing is eased as well. And then we'll see declines that, of course, the housing downturn is, is the most important catalyst. Just a quick mention of some of the risks some, or some of the positive of the company. One is that the company has moved into, has tried to move into manufacturing higher value add products. Some of these are slightly higher gross margin. They're kind of 25 or 30% gross margin as opposed to the kind of, you know, 10, 15% that they get strictly on outright distribution. And these are particularly roof and floor systems. So higher product margin initiatives, a large stock repurchase program, and some digital initiatives that basically tie a, a large builder with builders for sources so they can source materials, make change orders a bit faster and all that. That seems to be having some traction and it may insulate them to some degree. We think it's a positive. We don't think it outweighs the, uh, the negatives. All right, next, not all of our shorts are over earners, but this presentation is, is over heavy on over earners. All right, so this is Hub Group. This is a transportation company. So again, COVID lockdowns and labor shortages led to reduced capacity. There was a significant shift in consumer demand from consumer services to consumer goods. There was a shift of attractiveness away from trucking towards rail and intermodal, which I'll use almost interchangeably here. And it allowed the intermodal providers to, to raise prices quite aggressively. And those effects are reversing. We expect the pricing has started to fall. And let's, let's run into some of the details here. So Hub Group is primarily intermodal. They offer LTL, truckload, a number of other transportation services, but it's primarily intermodal. They, they do own a significant number of, of containers as well. So trucking has always had a bit of a problem with, with finding truck drivers for a number of reasons, but it's, it's effectively always, always looking to, to hire and seemingly always has difficulty. Now, when COVID hit, that accelerated sharply. A lot of truckers are in, tend to be a bit older, they're more, unfortunately, more, more disease prone. So the, the, the labor tightness accelerated, if you will. And in between the other key effect of COVID, and this, this one was actually quite dramatic. I didn't expect this, this large jump. The U.S. is, uh, U.S. consumer primarily spends on services. It's, it's a much higher dollar figure. But what happened here as COVID hit is that you had federal stimulus programs that maintain consumer buying power. But at the same time, you couldn't go to the outdoor music venue, the cinema. You couldn't go to the restaurants. So all of the service, uh, many of the service items got, got hurt, very badly hurt. So people decided to spend on, on consumer goods. So this is, think your video games, your Peloton bicycles, your recreational vehicles, the whole 
sorts of things. So you're, you're Winnebago, so you can go traveling across the country if that is your, your particular form of entertainment. So many consumer goods are made in Asia, and it triggered a, a spike in, in import volume in the U.S., about 20% spike in, in, in goods. So the West Coast ports, as, as we know, were completely inundated in the U.S. Ships were forced to slow steam or to loiter off the coast and waiting for offload capacity. So with this happening, the, the price of offload capacity, partly trucking and partly intermodal rail, went through the roof. And trucking more so because of the, the labor issues we mentioned earlier. Trucking is a bit more labor intensive. So the interesting thing to note here is that the price of trucking increased much faster, which allowed the intermodal players to capture price as well. And the relative distance between those two numbers shifted in favor towards intermodal. So along the way, we have people like Hub Group that were able to take advantage of the situation and increase prices very dramatically. By dramatically, you think about a shipping business, you do have swings in demand, which lead to significant price increases and decreases. But decreases, but they were able to increase prices by over 40% year over year. So, and this on the back of a, a relatively modest in volume. So this business, which normally runs about an 8% EBITDA, sort of six to 9% in that range, it saw a 400 basis point increase in, in EBITDA margins and a commensurate increase in, in gross margins. Okay. So what's happening now? Well, a consumer demand is shifting back towards services as COVID lockdowns have ended and the shortages of containers and truck chassis and vessels have eased. So the World Container Index is showing significant declines in the price of, of shipping cost. And you also see the spot rates of intermodal falling here. And that's that green line, which is partially complete. So what's happening on the estimates and the, and the valuation side? Well, uh, estimates see effectively no problem. They have been increased, they continue to increase. So no worries. So there is no evidence of this going on here. And, you know, prices actually do look, or multiples do look fairly low, but again, based on very high estimate projections. And if we adjust the estimates, the margins are up around here as well. So that's kind of, you know, nine or 10 EBITDA when this company normally trades at, uh, you know, kind of in seven-ish, seven-ish times EBITDA. So we think that's, uh, that's another good potential short. Risks, at this point, we see that there is some labor strife and there are low water levels on the Mississippi River which provides a fair amount of inland waterways. We don't think this is going to be a significant impact. And we think that at worst, if we have additional strikes, that that could delay normalization a bit, but probably not enough to derail our, our short thesis here. Shifting gears a little bit. All right, so this, is a, this one is from our declining business model. This is Xerox. In a nutshell, the industry is in secular decline. Sales and margins are declining. Significantly, there was a, a cancellation of a, of a major agreement between Fuji Xerox, which is a joint venture, Fuji and Xerox. They, well, I'll go into more detail later. The cancellation of that agreement that allows Fuji to, to, uh, to compete directly. They've made a significant number of tech acquisitions and investments, some of whose logic is questionable. Leverage is high and the stock is expensive, but there's a big caveat here, which is that there is an activist investor, that's Carl Icahn, and he and his group control about 22% of the equity. So let's uh, let's run through this. I think we all know Xerox. The company makes the home to high-end production printing and copiers. They also are moving into cloud-based content, managed printing services, things like that. And they also have a venture capital a subsidiary that we'll, that we'll talk about in just a moment. Right, so the industry in secular decline, no surprise here. People are returning to the office, but they're returning slowly. And the number of pages printed has declined for a very long time. 
So that uh, there's no reason for that to reverse. I don't think it ever goes away, but it continues to drop, you know, one, two, three percent per year. Uh, so the company sales have been declining. This is a growth curve. And other than the odd acquisition, the company sales have been declining kind of endlessly. I thought this was kind of interesting that uh, there was an article that we found that uh, talked about how Xerox was going to recoup its market share. And this is back from 2003. Yeah, that's way back there. Okay. So they, uh, they have longstanding problems. Margins have suffered tremendously. And other than a you know, large series of layoffs and restructurings that they put in place, margins just continue to decline. One of the reasons this happens is because you have third-party consumables, which provide a substantial amount of the margin, are taking, are taking share away. So they, they naturally have to compete. And managed services and some of the other areas that they move into are unable to, to compensate for that. All right. So the Fuji agreement, Fuji Xerox and, or Fuji and Xerox had a joint venture where Fuji Xerox would sell an APAC, Xerox would sell everywhere else. They shared technology and they shared marketing and distribution. Fuji has since basically bypassed Xerox substantially, developed its own technology, and they've canceled this agreement. They canceled the agreement in 2020, but allowed that they would continue to sell products under Fuji Xerox until March 2023, which is coming up right around. But that's going to allow Fuji Xerox or Fuji, that's going to rebrand Fuji to, to compete directly with Xerox. Okay. And another wrinkle here is that Xerox actually buys a significant amount of its product from Fuji Xerox. So they are competing with their, with their customer or with their supplier rather. All right. Some of their acquisitions have made sense. And they're obviously trying to make up for this decline in revenue. Some of this makes sense. And some of it is really quite inexplicable. They started moving into sensors for remote monitoring, monitoring of infrastructure assets as part of, an, in, out of things or IoT play. They tried to move into metal 3D printing operations. That perhaps makes more sense, but it is a very different technology. That piece is being scaled back per a recent earnings call. But they also have investments in artificial reality and visual support. Some of this is for remote repair of the machines, and some of this may make sense as well. But it does seem that there's, there's kind of a loss of focus here. Carl Icahn. Okay. Icon first bought back in 2015. He is associated with a fellow named Darwin Deason that owns another 5%. I'm sorry. So it's 27.5%. So initially, Icon wanted Xerox to acquire Hewlett Packard. Xerox was in a deal for Fuji to acquire them in 2018. Icon effectively scuppered the deal on their behalf, hoping to hold out for HP, and he got neither deal. But we do see his involvement has, uh, has increased from 2020, from mid 2020. He does control six board seats. And his, his involvement obviously represents a risk. And there could be a, a surprise takeout here or not, or he could sell the stake. We, we don't know, but as uh, a short, we need to be careful about that. On the leverage side, the company is about seven times trailing EBITDA debt. So this is not a pretty picture. These are declining cash flows, increasing leverage. Okay. The dividend yield is, is fairly high. So that would have to be covered in a short as well. That's another downside to a short. It's multiples. The company is still fairly expensive given what it is, especially relative to history. And this is somewhat inexplicable. At the same time, it is kind of eight times business, six or eight times multiple business. And that's kind of typical, maybe even a bit expensive of what we call a any business short. Yeah. Those tend to be cheaper and earnings to keep falling away, sort of the opposite of a, you know, of a growth stock that keeps growing into its multiples. These shrink into their valuations. Key risk here is ICON or what I would call a slow motion leverage recap, which is company continues to borrow and reduce its share count and tries to maintain a, a, a less, a, a slower decline on the EPS line than you might see on the, on the sales line.
uh, catalysts. We have the declining printing equipment. We have new competition from Xerox. And we think that the, uh, the margins in sales are too aggressive. Okay, Accor, this is another over-earner for different reasons. This company benefited from an industry-wide feedstock disruption. They raised prices very aggressively, which boosted sales and margin. That supply disruption is easing. Prices are starting to come down, but it's not reflected in the, in the forecasts yet. Multiples effectively in core or ignore the upcoming reversion. So what does Accor do? They're a leading U.S. manufacturer of electrical products, which is um, perhaps it, it's uh, electrical-related products. It's PVC, conduit, wire track, and wire support. So anything that goes into construction that holds wires in place or protects wires is something that they care about. They primarily serve the U.S. non-residential market, and this will be important in a moment, the secondarily residential construction. Uh, they have a small business that sells safety and infrastructure products. We will really talk about that. Uh, it's primarily domestic, um, domestic U.S., and we, Adcor is not a household name because it was, it was acquired out of Tyco and then went public in 2016. Okay, so effectively what happened in 2021, there were a series of power outages, very famous power outages in Texas, rapid freezes, and there were shortfalls, electrical grid failure, followed by a series of summer hurricanes in Louisiana that idled a significant portion of the, of the country's PVC resin production capacity. So unlike typically when you have a hurricane, you have enough warning and you can shut down your petrochemical plant and avoid major damage. But the, the power outages in Texas were, were sudden and unexpected. So a lot, of the, a lot of the intermediate product that was flowing through the pipes actually got stuck and in some cases froze. So it took an extended amount of time to repair some of this damage. So Adcor buys and uses this PVC resin, but because they had, because they, they are a large supplier of, of the conduit, they had a lot of PVC resin and they had pipe in-house and they were able to raise prices very substantially. By substantially, I mean, if you can imagine a relatively commodity product like PVC tubing, the company was able to raise its, uh, its prices 90% and 93% to back-to-back quarters late in 2021 and early 2022. So the gross margins increased by 1,300 basis points. So really just a, a wild increase. So here we see PVC export prices. Houston, more than doubling in price. And the PVC plants have reopened. The prices are coming down. There is channel restocking, which is sustaining the demand to an extent, but that is going to end shortly. We've unwound the, the price spike. And on top of that, we have, we have a slowdown in construction, generally, and seasonal weakness because we're moving out of the construction period into the winter season. In terms of construction, much of the excess demand that came through was in residential construction. We think houses where PVC pipe is, uh, is a very small cost component for the house, but it's, uh, it's effectively, it's, it's an expense that's unavoidable. So if it's 1% of the cost of the house, but you tell your builder that the, now they need to pay 2%, right? Or a doubling of price, the builders will happily pay for it. But that's no longer the case because housing is in decline. Okay, so uh, with the margins up like this, the uh, the estimates have given back the forecast. Assume a give back some about twenty percent on pre-crisis revenues, which is this piece here. And there's uh, we think there's a substantial amount to go even in the absence of a housing market decline. Again, the margins seem to ignore the the forecast margins ignore the reversion back to you know back to some sort of a, a more reasonable level. So the stock looks cheap at first pass. We actually think it's not.
Okay. The, uh, the risks here, we've talked generally about the catalyst, but the risk here is that there are secular or favorable headwinds towards digitalization and in particular data centers, although that seems to be slowing as well, and hospital business. So hospital business is, uh, is very wire intensive, needs a lot of AdCore's products. So those are bullish tailwinds that, uh, that uh, will likely remain in effect. Robinhood. All right. I feel like we have to talk about this one. We were short Robinhood until Sam Bankman-Fried decided to buy 7% of the company. And now we're short Robinhood again. All right. So the thesis in a nutshell is performance indicators are, are deteriorating. Revenue is from speculative accounts. It's almost all. It's options and it's crypto and it's trading in accounts that, that are average two to $4,000. Okay. So it's a very small accounts. They don't charge commissions. They do obtain payment for order flow that is under SEC scrutiny. Maybe it goes away, which would be a death knell for the company. Maybe it does not. Unclear at this point. And of course, SBF will seek to sell a stake because he needs the money right now. Just let's just not hear that. Hmm. All right. So the performance indicators are falling rapidly. So the number of accounts, assets are no longer growing, average revenue per user declining, monthly average user here. That's declining. Assets under custody growth has tapered off and it's declining as well. So, you know, two to four thousand dollar accounts. You know, I hate to be so cavalier, but when they if they blow up trading options, then um, you know, it's probably a fairly high turnover. We're seeing that. Hood's a very small company compared to some of its rivals. So you have Schwab and Interactive, which are the other the other two obvious public comps. You know, much larger. Robinhood has very little. They are not diversified. They don't have any fee income, asset management fees, or things like that. So it's basically transaction fees obtained through payment for order, for order flow and interest income. And it's very difficult to differentiate this business. Um, and Hood spends a tremendous amount on marketing. So they are obtaining actually less and less bang for their marketing buck. And their marketing dollars are, in fact, declining their marketing expense. So it's going to be difficult to maintain where they are. And kind of just as a the comparison here, they spent about 18% revenues on market. Okay. Payment for order flow, this is the big question. Whereas we thought perhaps six months ago that the SEC might cancel payment for order flow outright. We think that's probably not the case going forward. We think it's uh, it's too embedded in the US system at this point, but we could see less dramatic reforms. We could see uh, a push for best execution transparency and maybe some pressure and jawboning to to kind of diminish this this model right but uh, people like citadel they use it they're a supporter so it is uh, it is kind of hard to do away with it wholesale and quickly okay the company has a large number of of complaints we don't seem to like them the meme stock blow up made a number of customers very angry at them for restricting trading in uh, certain securities, GameStop and others. And there's ongoing litigation. They apparently have been very lax with their compliance in, you know, in allowing traders in or new trading and traders into trade products that they that they should not have been allowed to trade. They were unqualified investors. Mr. Bankman-Fried, uh, we're all reading about this in the newspaper every day, but he acquired 7.6% of Hood in early 2022. That, uh, that, us, that led us to recommend a cover of the short, thinking that he might move ahead and try to acquire the whole company. We don't think that's risk right now. We think the risk is the opposite, that he will sell his shares. The question is, will anyone else buy this company? Uh, we think there's a very small chance of, of m and risk at this point. Effectively, Again, the accounts are very small. The KPIs are shrinking. So we don't think this presents a very attractive opportunity. So forecasts. So one of the obvious positives that needs to be mentioned here is that the company is about 58% of the balance sheet is in cash. 
So we need to acknowledge that. At the same time, the estimates are expecting the company to return back to kind of a 50% growth and then and then continue growing in the 20s and teens. We don't think this is realistic. The company does not earn money now. So we think this is a company that may be on its way out. Okay. Catalyst and risk. We've talked about the catalyst. Let's talk about the, uh, the risk very quickly. Rising interest rates will provide some incremental revenue. So that is a positive. It's always a possibility of an acquisition, although not, not, I don't consider that a high likelihood and some sort of speculative mania returns. Okay. It's possible. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we still need to go through this, this cycle before we return to that. And last name here, it's another over earner, but a very different flavor. So I always feel a bit odd talking about Service Corp because uh, it is the U.S.'s largest funeral home provider and we're talking about COVID. So I feel a little bit crass, but, uh, but focusing strictly on the investment merits here. One is uh, the company over earned temporarily due to a spike in excess deaths in 2020 and 2021 which has begun to taper off in 2022. Secular trends are mixed. The company has litigation risk and the street estimates have very little sales give back, if you will, from this excess. All right, so the company is the largest provider of, as they call it, death care products. So it's funeral home locations, crematoria, cemeteries, and all of the services. COVID has been, you know, had swept through Service Corp and caused them to, you know, actually created a very substantial increase in their sales. So the sales growth jumped to kind of a 34% number in March of 2021. And be before that, they had been growing somewhere between one and 2%. And that includes the acquisition of uh, small funeral, typically family run funeral homes over, you know, they, they do several of these smaller deals um, every year. Typically it's someone that's retiring from the business. Kids don't want to take over the business, and this is a you know a viable exit strategy for them. As we know, COVID did not affect everyone equally; it affected the older people more. So sales jumped up, and margins leapt up as well. So EBITDA margins in this business jumped from 27 to over 35 percent. Both of them are starting to what the rollover now. Quick note on the secular trends: there are positives and negatives here. U.S. population is aging. Life expectancy has stalled. It seems to no longer be improving for a whole series of debated reasons. And the industry remains highly fragmented. So the fragmentation helps SCI because of size, but also it's, it's a source of acquisition candidate. On the negative side, um, kind of the biggest negative secular trend for SCI is that families are opting for lower price cremation. Cremations now exceed 50%, I believe 55 or 60% of U.S. death services and that is primarily a cost phenomenon. So cremation costs about half as much as a traditional burial does, and SCI does perform cremations, but obviously they are, you know, they're much cheaper, lower revenues, and lower margin for them as well. Okay. A couple of major lawsuits. One is being settled for about 200 billion. It's a big class action lawsuit, and effectively it's about um, the company is being accused of using misleading sales practices, and this is primarily where you prepay for a funeral. Okay, and then you leave the trust assets with them. And the other allegation is that the trust assets are not being managed appropriately. If this company was growing at about 1% or 2% per year, and all of a sudden you saw a kind of a 20 or 30% growth, these, these deaths, and this is where I start to feel very uncomfortable, these excess deaths had to come from somewhere. So in terms of multiples, company trades, kind of where it's, where it's created over the last X numbers of years, it is seen as a viable long-term acquisition home for family businesses. So it's, uh, you know, it's actually relatively favored and they do do a robust business in what they call pre-need sales. So they take the sale up front and then they amortize it into income over time. 
and that provides them some sort of cushion. But it still can't, it can't resolve this issue here. So risks are basically, you know, business performance. Right? So if for some reason the excess deaths remain elevated, I can't see this happening, but you know, addiction or other, you know, other horrible things to think about, then the the excess deaths could remain above trend for some period of time. We don't think that's likely. And lastly, they are stepping up their, their digital efforts. So they do have some operational efficiencies that, uh, that are working through the system. So those could be a positive as well. So with that, hopefully I'll have some time once we've blown through these companies. Thank you very much again. And with that, I will turn it back over to Valerie. Yes, thank you so much for your insightful presentation, Eric. Super thorough. You know, perhaps I can start the Q&A session off with a question from our team. With the midterms as well as Donald Trump just announcing his formal entry into the 2024 presidential election, how will this, you know, affect the companies and how will they fare after elections, especially if the House is split into two? Well, I guess I would say that one view that perhaps I'm, I'm, I'm partial to is that is that a split Congress in the United States is actually generally a good thing because there's less chance of, of extremists on either side moving the business environment too much. So if you end up with something with relative stalemate in government, you know, and maybe this, uh, maybe this belies my political leanings a little bit, but that's, that, that's, that, that's probably at least a non-negative. So, you know, the recession is probably going to happen either way. I think we are in one, we'll, we'll see, but ultimately I can't, you know, I don't, I don't think it's going to change very much. Awesome. Thank you so much. We have another question, which is, which companies will be the most hit if at the next FOMC, they hike bigger than 50 bips? Ah, okay. Well, I guess the, uh, the knee-jerk response there would be anything that's housing or banking related is probably going to be worse hit. So looking at this list of companies here, I would say probably Builders First Source is the most exposed. And then I would say, I would say AtCore would be exposed as well, more so on the non-residential side and maybe some industrial. Certainly Builder's First Source. And I'm going to say that maybe Robinhood might be aided a little bit in terms of increased interest income. It might not be material, but, but somewhat. So that would be my answer. Builder's First Source, probably the most exposed. Awesome. Okay. For the interest of time, let's wrap it up with just the last three questions. Someone asked relating to your last answer, wouldn't financials fare better with higher interest rate hikes due to bigger net interest margins? Yes, I think that's very probably the case. And again, I think it probably has some modest positive impact on, on Robin Hood. Awesome. Thank you so much. Last two questions. The next person asked, how about shorting indexes? Shorting indexes. You know, that's that's always a possibility, but I think our approach has been that it's very difficult to, to actually judge broad market direction. And what we tend to like to do is to focus on idiosyncratic reasons to short names and recommend that people look for the opposite on, on the long side. I think especially in this environment, if you have the market sort of generally declining, you want to be very focused on, on cattle. I mentioned avoiding short squeezes, but I'm not sure if I mentioned spending more time or refocusing on catalysts. And I think if you focus on catalysts, I think you end up with a greater opportunity for, for generating alpha. 
Awesome. Okay. We just have one last question, which is, do you refer to technical charting too short? No. That's, uh, that's an easy answer. No, we're, we're effectively, we're a fundamental shop. We start with a, with a front end process with the models that you see there. And then we turn entirely to fundamentals. Let me put one very modest caveat on that. In our declining business model, that tends to produce companies which are, or points to companies that have relatively low multiples, but that could be in declining secular trends over a long period of time. So sometimes it's more advantageous to wait for some positive surprise, or they managed to beat earnings one quarter because they laid off so many people. So you get a little bit of a positive pop. There might be some timing advantage that, that might be technically driven, but as a rule, no, we're really kind of bottoms up. Thank you so much, Eric. And in the interest of time to close this webinar, maybe you can share with us and as well as the audience some final words you want to leave us with about today's topic. And well, generally, first, you know, thank you very much for the opportunity to present. Thank you again, of Valerie, course. for uh, for hosting. And I would say, uh, in terms of in terms of what might be helpful over the next x number of x number of months and quarters, want to certainly be much more catalyst driven and idiosyncratic driven on you know certainly on the short side to avoid those short squeezes. And I think uh, I think there is still alpha to be made for people that are diligent, that are not afraid of footnotes, that you know, that are willing to you know to roll up the sleeves and dig into some of these companies and develop powerful theses. So uh, you know, good luck to us all. Awesome. Thank you so much, Eric. And that is our webinar for today. Thank you, Eric, for your time today, and thank you all attendees for being with us. If you wish to keep track of more insights from the topic today, I recommend following Eric on Smart Karma so you never miss any of his insights. If you have any other questions or comments, please email us at research at smartkarma.com. Thank you once again to Eric. I know it's really, really early for you. It's right now, I think it's like around 5 a.m. for you, 5 a.m.? Yep. So I hope you have a good nap after this and have a coffee. Thank you so much, everyone. Goodbye. Okay. Thanks again. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please share it with your networks. Subscribe to the podcast feed so you don't miss an episode. And follow Smart Karma on your social media. We're Smart Karma everywhere. And of course, don't forget to visit smartkarma.com for truly independent, differentiated investment research. As always, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.